0: Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. Stefano Manservisi is Director General for International Cooperation and Development, DEVCO, at the European Commission. In this podcast, Stefan discusses EU aid policy, paying particular attention to the Pacific region. We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Let's make a start. Uh, My name is Stephen Howes, and I'm the Director of the Development Policy Centre. And uh, we're one of the hosts uh, for today's seminar, along with the Centre for European Studies. So uh, thanks very much to our colleagues just down the road in uh, Liversidge Street for co-hosting this event. Uh, And thanks to Scott uh, and the European Union for approaching us to uh, uh, host this event, uh, which we're really um, interested to do. Uh, Before beginning, uh, let's uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, Uh, the Ngunnawal people, and pay our respect uh, to their elders past and present. Uh, So if you follow our activities, you'll know we had our big aid conference in February, uh, and then we took a break uh, to recover, and now we're starting up again a series of fairly regular uh, speakers and seminars, of which this is the first. So if you're interested, please have a look uh, on the table outside for upcoming events. Uh, They tend to be on this time, Wednesday lunchtime, but they, they vary a bit depending on speakers' availability. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, also it was a little bit chaotic. There was a training programming here before, which uh, we had to clear, uh, but there will be uh, refreshments afterwards, after this event, uh, thanks to the European Commission, so please stay for uh, for refreshments and, and chat. Uh, so our speaker today is uh, Stefano Mansovisi. so welcome. Uh, welcome to Canberra and thank you very much for uh, coming and uh, giving this talk. His topic is European Union development policy. Uh, Stefano Mansovisi is the Director General for International Cooperation and Development at the European Commission. He's had that role since May of last year. Uh, Before that, he's had a career uh, within the uh, European Commission uh, in various distinguished roles, but he also uh, is an academic And he's been a visiting professor at the University of Bologna, University of Rome III, and the College of Europe. Uh, I think, you know, especially with the massive cuts in aid uh, announced or proposed by Donald Trump, uh, you know, the importance of the European Union uh, has only grown. Uh, As it says in this flyer, more than half of that aid already comes, or the total OECD aid of $130 comes from the European Union, and you've got to think that amount... Is, uh, or that share uh, is only going to grow in the future with the US taking on a more sort of isolationist, inward-looking stance. Um, but we know Europe, you know, faces its own challenges, uh, so we're very interested to hear what uh, the policy landscape looks like for Europe, not only on aid but on development policy more broadly, uh, and uh, not only globally but also in our neck of the woods and... Uh, in relation to the Pacific. Uh, so I know you've got a lot to cover with all that, Stefano, and without further ado, ado I'll hand over to you. So please welcome Stefano Mansovici. Uh, he's, he'll talk for 30 to 40 minutes, so please make sure you've got lots of questions prepared.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for, for this opportunity. Um, yes, I will say a couple of things just to make a sort of a framework, but then I count very much on the interaction and therefore session and question and answer. Uh, first, uh, let me say that I'm, I'm particularly glad to be, uh, to be here uh, and starting almost. I mean, I had a couple of meetings this morning already, uh, but to be in this, in this university, which uh, I'm told passed through more than 100,000 students, uh, um, former prime ministers, six Nobel laureates, 30 current ambassadors, which is really interesting, and uh, for sure many leaders of this, of this country. By the way, also the former prime minister. I had the advantage to know uh, personally uh, one of them, Rod, and therefore I think it's uh, particularly important. Also, you are uh, ranked number one in Australia. Therefore, I couldn't imagine a better audience just to deliver some, uh, uh, some, some thinking about what the European Union is doing, And uh, uh, I, I would like to underline one point, you know, that is a feature of your university, uh, uh, thinking uh, strategically to a vision, to have the courage, creativity, and leadership. I think this is a bit uh, um, what uh, the very name of this center dedicated to Sir John Crawford uh, is suggesting. You know? I mean, and in these days, I think, in which uh, allow me to say politics is very much driven by short term, you know to have a say inspiration to to look a bit uh, a bit far away to think that to dare to be visionary in these days to be visionary is something which is not very much rewarded sometimes it's considered to be a bit outside the context outside reality i mean I would like to say let's uh, be outside the context sometime you know and uh, to think in a strategic way um, I, I think I think that uh, you know this is uh, starting maybe from this, because it happens that a few days ago uh, in Rome, uh, we uh, celebrated the 60th anniversary of the signature of the Treaty of Rome, which is the founding uh, moment of the European Economic Community, which now is the European Union. Um, I have to say, I mean, if there is an example of people who were thinking a bit totally I mean, unrealistically, real, maybe a bit forward. What that moment? You know, then we knew ups and downs. I mean, sometimes people say that now we are in a moment which is not over exciting, but maybe it's not over exciting because we are still struggling to, to prepare a future, to, to look a bit forward. And I think uh, this is, uh, you know, a bit what it is uh, uh, what it is important because uh, uh, the project of the, the European Union, uh, contrary to what people can sometimes, and books and can also suggest, it's not about economy. You know, it was always considered that integrating economy, in particular after the war, think back, in 58, uh, uh, was the way to put people at work together, setting aside ideologies, uh, which uh, I think worked uh, pretty well, because, uh, because after all, the European Union is still the biggest economic bloc in the world, uh, in trade terms, uh, in economic terms, in investment terms, um, in spite of the population which is not growing on the contrary, uh, I think that our history is a history in which uh, we have been able to, um, to marry differences and diversities with a certain unity in bringing forward the train. Now, you have seen the debates in these days, driven by the so-called white paper uh, that the Commission has published, with five uh, scenarios to say of what could be our common future. It is a clear evidence of one fact – that it is not about economic integration. (laughs) It's about a factor to, in a way or another, altogether, different speeds, then we can maybe discuss it, but to work in order to... Uh, build something which is much bigger than economic integration, tariff reduction, you know, custom union, et cetera, is to build policies around the concept of taking collective responsibility and uh, uh, building on our solidarity and our diversity. So, therefore, this is what the the European Union is. And, um, you know, I think uh, it's particularly important to bring uh, this reality here in the Pacific, uh, because we believe, I believe, that's a starting point is that uh, joining forces, the European Union and Australia, can uh, contribute to shape a better world, to identify some form of uh, of governance and uh, to bring forward values uh, which are ours, which are common. Then they are declined into different geographical areas, they have to be matching different maybe interests, short term interests, but I put myself in the long term and the long term our values are common. And therefore, one of the purposes of my visit here is uh, also uh, with the, the discussion at government level and the discussion with civil society level is to contributing, uh, to give a small contribution of building in the development area, you know, uh, to do more together in this area. This area is, uh, let's say, is an area which is uh, far away from Europe. Well, let's, let's discuss it if it's so far away apart from the fact that uh, you all have, many of you, have in any case uh, European far origins, but Europe is here because we have uh, 500,000 European citizens which are living in the regions, uh, in in our uh, French territories, which are part of Europe. Uh, because we are working together every day in the international organization, international institution, because we are present here with a vision also of development uh, through what we are doing with the, what we call the Pacific ACP countries, or our partners in Southeast Asia, you know, from Indonesia to Vietnam to Malaysia, uh, et cetera. Therefore, you know, we are, we, are, we, are, we are here. We are not far away, and uh, we wanted to contributing in setting up something, which is is, uh, let's say, more sustainable altogether. Therefore, this is, uh, let's say, this is, from our point of view, in any case, this is part of our approach, uh, this is a part of our history, this is part of our interpreting our, our role in, uh, in, in the world. We have uh, um, mutual, mutual concern, uh, but we have also common, uh, common interest uh, and common concerns in security, mobility and migration, climate change, poverty, inequalities, exclusion. Uh, Therefore, you know, the issue is, therefore, how we can do it better together. I think that uh, we have now a global consensus, which is called the Agenda 2030, you know, uh, and the SDGs. Uh, We have a blueprint, uh, which is uh, globally shared in order to tackle poverty, uh, inequalities and exclusions. I put the three concepts together because otherwise, you know, if we limit ourselves only to the narrow concept of poverty, therefore we are not able uh, to take uh, um, in full what has been uh, the real message of the Agenda 2030 and the SDGs, uh, to, have a par- to be a powerful call on all of us, uh, telling us that unsustainability of our world is something which is common. And therefore that we have to set up right policies in our countries, in the European Union countries, in Australia, you know, uh, and uh, to work with our developing partners uh, uh, in order to work together, in order to to prepare something which is common. In other terms, the the old distinction donors and beneficiaries is a bit over. There is always, and we... Are proud to be the biggest donor in the world. But what I want to underline is not this sort of asymmetric situation, which is the future. I mean, the future is even more partnership. SDGs are for everybody. SDGs are binding on everybody. SDGs can be achieved only if we all change a bit. For this is, I think, the starting point. And uh, there's been also Let's say, quite quickly, a sort of immediate consequence of all this, which is extremely important, which has been the the, on climate change, the agreement reached in Paris at the COP21, which is interested for a couple of of reasons. First, because it is a binding agreement. And we are, as Europeans, all the time promoting an order which is based on rules, not just on good action, on rules. And therefore, I think that this, uh, uh, I mean, the fact that uh, in Paris, uh, we promote an agenda and we reach an, an agreement on the climate change, which is binding, is extremely important because we need rules in this world. Second, it's because it's setting up, I mean, visibly and almost, almost physically, an agenda which is binding on everybody. It's not just a question of financing good projects around. It's a question of changing the way of producing and consuming. This is what is the climate change uh, agenda on which, uh, on which agreed. And uh, and third, it is because uh, we are not uh, taking things in a separate way. It is based on a sort of holistic, whole of the government, whole of the society approach. This is a third element that I would like to underline because because it's it's creating challenges. A real issue on which we have to discuss It is not just a question to to finance a good project. Really, sitting and thinking what we have to do together, how we we have to do it. Therefore, you know, um, a universal agenda, a binding agenda, a holistic agenda. I think that there is enough material in order not only to study uh, but also to act and to um, be accountable uh, as an institution vis-à-vis our, our our citizenship. But then we also agreed uh, to mobilise um, uh, means to implement all this. And also here, starting from for those. Uh, working a bit on development, starting from uh, the, what we call the uh, Addis Abeba agenda for, for financing for development, we said that, that you know, again, uh, in order to, uh, to implement it, to, and, and to bring forward this uh, agenda, agenda of deep changes, you know, it's not just a question of money. We, we say ODA, important, grant money, important, you know. We remain committed as Europeans to reach the 0.7%, even if we are quite far away. We are now at 043 but still several of our member states are already beyond 1%. Of so therefore, it remains a target. But we also said uh, this is, will never be enough if we want to uh, you know, really have the means to implement this uh, important, powerful agenda. And therefore, we all agreed that we have to mobilize investment, Private investment, in particular, big challenge. I guess we have to to discuss about this. How this can be can be possible? How it is possible to uh, to bring to to bring together private sector meaning profit and public interest, which is promoting SDGs, is a real issue. Ten years ago, this would have been seen as a sort of sacrilege, impossible. This is a contradiction. Now we said no. We have to mobilise private investment. Let's see how to do it. But third. We also said, let's mobilize national resources. And therefore, you know, this is an important chapter, taxation policies in developing countries, you know, what it means. And and taxation is not just to take money, to levy money. It's a question of distribute money. It's a question of how to use this money. So, therefore, the means of implementations are are suddenly much more uh, complex and sophisticated than the old ODA, the old grants in which, you know, good project means, meant, uh, you know, to do good things. I mean, good project maybe today do not mean a lot if they are not embedded into a policy dialogue, into a common vision, reason why I started underline the necessity to have a vision, and if they are not embedded into a partnership which implies also, also, the fact that we are entitled to ask our partner what they do with, with, the, with the money they are earning, with the money they are living, with the money that uh, is generating by the economic activity. You know, when I say this, I think, for example, the huge profit and the huge income created by, in several, uh, in several developing countries, by mining, uh, by oil, uh, by exploitation of natural resources, which are. Not necessarily invested immediately for the development of this country. so all this now turned to be uh, turned to be debatable. We can discuss about it. We can put that into our, our uh, in, into our partnership discussion. Now, as Europeans, in the, on the basis of all this, we try and uh, you know to define a couple of uh, uh, let's say framework in which we put all this in order to guide our own action. The first one is the, uh, what is called the European Global Strategy for Foreign Policy and Security, that you, are probably, you, you probably know, uh, which has been presented by HRVP Federica Mogherini some times ago, which is defining what the European Union can do and intends to do as a global actor in the world, you know, in the close neighborhood, but also far away. Far away is also the Pacific, which is maybe far away geographically, but it's not far away in terms of common interests and common challenges. Therefore, we have now a vision, again, a vision. We have now a framework in which we try to be coherent and to put uh, uh, to the service of our international action all the policies that we have, not only the traditional foreign policy, but also the development policy, the commercial policy, but also our, our other policies, from the agricultural one to the strength of the single market, which is probably one of the most powerful starting points in order to do business abroad. Therefore, we set up this into, the, into this global strategy, and which is, uh, let's say, the first. Uh, pillar of our, uh, of our policy definition. And the second pillar is the European consensus for development, you know, which is uh, the specific narrative about development. Now, this consensus is, uh, which is, uh, has been published, you know, it's not uh, adopted yet, but our fairly complex interinstitutional setting, you are aware of this, uh, but certainly is designed a, a bit of vision in order to implement all this and to guide our policy action. First, it is a consensus for the whole of the European Union, meaning European institutions and member states. Therefore, you know, when uh, uh, one of our member states is acting on its own development policy, it's actually implementing this consensus. Second, we want to give, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, a readability and, uh, to, to what we are doing, putting this fully in phase with the Agenda 2030 and the SDGs. And we said our development policy turned to be global. Therefore, it is federating all our instruments and our policies and will be driven by uh, what in the Agenda uh, 2030 uh, identify with the five Ps. Partnership as a way of working. Partnership. We don't decide alone. We sit with our partner, we discuss, and we arrive to common conclusions. Second, people, because at the end of the day, poverty, inequality, and exclusions are the thermometer through which we assess the pertinence and effectiveness of what we are deciding. People remain at the center, of course, of our development policy. Third is our planet. We are living in a planet which is one. We are a planet which is under threats, but also offering new opportunity. Planet means, you know, to deal with natural resources, with climate change, with all what is linked to the sustainability of our work. Sustainability of our way of producing, sustainability of our way of consuming. Then uh, uh, productivity, which is, or prosperity, which is about uh, saying something that, again, was not that easy years ago is, uh, you know, we have to to generate economic growth. Uh, Economic growth is not uh, the only instrument to measure if we are doing well or bad. But one, one thing is sure, that if there is no economic growth, if there is no job creation, then all the rest has a little impact. Therefore, we, we have to do it, but then we have also to have a sustainable growth. We have something which is creating decent jobs, for example, which is not just creating for the sake of increasing GDP indicators. This is one. But certainly, if we don't work in order to, to, to generate jobs, economic activity and growth, clearly all actions in order to address SDGs and, all the, and, and to fulfil it will be, will be meaningless and without any, any ground. And then there is peace. Peace because... We, uh, we all consider, I think that we have to share this, that there will be no development without peace and stability. And therefore, you know, we have to embed the work for peace, for, uh, for, for good governance, for human rights, uh, into fully into our development policy. Which in terms, uh, each of these P, you know, brings uh, bring challenges that uh, from a European perspective, uh, that I think are also uh, and very well understandable here because you look at that maybe from a different one but uh, it is the same thing are creating a certain number of problematic nexus between the, the development policy in traditional terms and the new one the nexus between uh, uh, development and security for example. Years ago it was again something uh, a bit a bit risky because there were two separate things. Well we had experiences uh, in Africa in particular but not only in Africa also here close Think about Fiji, think about Timor-Leste years ago, etc. When we mobilized also development money in order to, let's say, to create capacity of resilience in the society or in Africa to allow African countries to mobilize troops for peacekeeping. I know that is controversial, I know that is not easy, but we have experiences to, to deal with this nexus. We are increasing experience in order to address another nexus, which is the one between development policy and migration. Here, another hot topic in the region. can imagine how hot it is in Europe in these days, in particular because of the migratory pressure from sub-Saharan Africa through Libya, and also from what I still don't call migratory pressure, but rather refugee pressure from the east, in particular from Syria. In any case, equally, from our society, these have been seen as threats, our society part of our societies, our government, some of our governments. But in any case, this is part of the debate that we have in the European Union in these days. Therefore, the nexus between this and migration is obvious. That should be one of the top of the, our vision for development. I said already nexus between private and development. I say nexus between climate and development. Again, all this are uh, suggesting only one thing, that we have not... To think in terms of silos, we have to think in terms of whole of the policies, whole of the government, whole of the society. This is uh, sometimes easier to say than than to do it. But uh, I think uh, that is worth noting because, as I said at the beginning, we need uh, to inject a bit of vision sometimes uh, in order to deal better, maybe with the short-term challenges that we are all living. Now, here with Australia and in the Pacific. I think that first uh, allow me to say that uh, uh, Australia and the European Union and its member states uh, are belonging to the same part of the world in terms of value, in terms of democratic, uh, uh, let's say, tradition and and practice, in terms of, uh, let's say, what are the big... uh, ...way of dealing with the, the world problem. Then, obviously, we have differences here and there, but I think that uh, we, I can say that uh, is this, the strategic partnership with Australia is a strategic partnership with a country which is substantially belonging to, uh, to our part of the world in terms of values, in terms of, uh, let's say, of, of democracy, in terms of governance, in terms of, in terms of human rights. Now... Uh, We have a framework agreement uh, that we concluded after years of negotiation, now uh, is awaiting the, the final signature. Therefore, this will be, let's say, the way... To have a bit more strategy in our relation, this is setting the scene. Same thing is also uh, about uh, the uh, the free trade agreement that we have. We are preparing now. We have to work on a scoping paper, as we say in our jargon, you know, in order to identify uh, what uh, what what next. Uh, again, is more than a co- I mean Now, w- when we talk about free trade agreement, you know, uh, twenty years ago we were talking about tariffs. Today we are not talking about tariffs. We are talking about uh, way of producing, added value chain, non, non-tariff barrier, which means, if we turn that positive, in communalities, you know, the, to promote better access to, 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 to the markets. And what, uh, I mean, developed economies like the one of the European Union, what Australia is doing, is not just bilateral. You know, they are, they are, they are contributing in setting the scene again through rules to the whole global community so therefore let's let's work also on this we are at the beginning but we are determined to go on in this way we have uh, um, you know uh, to, on the basis of this we have to develop uh, uh, Areas uh, of cooperation uh, uh, which are of joint interest. I mean, I, I was this morning uh, talking with the Australian Leadership uh, uh, Forum. We were talking about uh, digital economy, for example, right? Digital economy for development. You know, this is an area on which, uh, again, years ago, people would have said, well, people are dying of starvation, what do you think about digital? Uh, you know, digital application can help in managing better the crops, for example. Can be helpful in managing better the markets. Can be helpful in order to, 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 to treat people which are far away in the, in the countryside. E, e-health is particularly important. It's not, uh, it's not by the way, it's too sophisticated if we want to do it therefore I mean but uh, the the australia leadership forum is uh, particularly important because always in this dimension of thinking together a bit ahead and uh, in thinking together in a more visionary terms is uh, is is preparing also also generation of uh, of leaders, and therefore I think this is is, is particularly important and uh, you know what uh, what uh, uh, we uh, we want to do together is also linked to some um, let's say drivers that in our consensus we outlined in a in a way which is particularly visible and I would like to, to mention only one here which is gender you know uh, we say we believe we consider on our practice and our experience that if we don't deal with the gender and women empowerment in a strategic and structural way, we can do a lot of good projects, we can do a lot of politically correct actions, but then uh, this uh, will not make sufficient critical mass. Uh, it's, it's, it's simply impossible. It's, again, sometimes been taken a bit anecdotal way, but it's simply impossible to believe that we can uh, be serious in dealing with global agenda if more than half of the world population is still discriminated. Or, as common agenda here in the Pacific is subject to to systematic violence. I think this is an area on which, and I will discuss it with my colleagues of the Australian government tomorrow, how we can step up our common actions here and elsewhere. Here, because we are now setting up projects and programs here in the Pacific. But I think that we have to think strategically also here. Gender is not a sector. Gender is a cross-cutting issue, which is one of the most powerful enabling to do eff- effectively in the SDGs area. Now, this area, would like to start with this, because it's the most important thing generally and also implemented here in the Pacific. Now, here in the Pacific, what the European Union is doing? Well, first, I have to say that, and to recall the obvious for all of you, uh, that uh, um, there are 500,000 European citizens which are living in the Pacific. We have pieces of Europe here in the Pacific, you know. The French territories, New Caledonia, French Polynesia, Wallis, etc. There's also uh, 42 British citizens which are living in Pitcair. So, therefore, we have Europe here. And uh, and we have have Europe here, and we are here also because since uh, the 70s, uh, we are associated with the small islands of the Pacific, which progressively grew in numbers uh, in the moment when they uh, acceded to independence or decided to, to be independent. And we are here uh, with, the, with presence, with project, with people and with money. Therefore, you know, just to give you an example, they, they, uh, I mean, what we are investing in development uh, in, just in, in this period is 800 million euros. in order to support projects and programs uh, bilaterally and regionally. We have a a negotiation which is still ongoing, which is called Economic Partnership Agreement, which is is willing to empower even more these countries uh, to be able to stand in international trade uh, through the preferential and the full and free access to the European market. It's far away, yes, indeed. But it is important because it diversifies and it helps this country to bring forward reforms in order to turn from what is to offer the reality, assistance, and to turn into more viable economies in spite of their, of their vulnerabilities. We are supporting the regional I mean, setting from the Pacific Island Forum that I attended several times. Next, uh, next September will be also our Commissioner for Development uh, coming. Uh, uh, we are now you know, all uh, the territories of, uh, of of the of the South Pacific are now participating, including the French territories. So far, they, they, they were not. Uh, since the, the last year, they are also also participating. So, therefore, we are supporting the Pacific Islands Forum as the po- the place where. Policy are set where political discussion held, but then we are working with all the different crops you know here in the region from the University of South Pacific uh, through the SPC to other. Therefore, I mean, we are uh, we are working on uh, uh, in order to strengthen the capacity at regional level. By the way, for those which are familiar uh, with uh, our. Cotonou setting. You know, we have an agreement with the African Pacific, African Caribbean and Pacific States, and Pacific is the third P, since the 70s. We are now preparing the future of this relationship because this agreement, this convention will expire in 2020. Therefore, we are thinking together on how, if we have to, to replicate it, and if yes, how. And from European Commission point of view, again, based on the same approach, globalization with some rules, with some common value, you know, we believe that we have to create another agreement, but also to have this agreement a bit less diluting Pacific, Caribbean, Africa altogether, which has been the case so far, but also to give more relevance to each of these pillars and community, And we arrived to the Pacific, uh, which is uh, a community, which is a regional uh, entity, which is uh, a reality. But we have also to build together how this can work, because uh, because Pacific uh, is not only the islands. Pacific are also Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia. How we can set up something which is, at the same time, responding to this bilateral let's say, scheme between the European Union and the Pacific Islands, but also to have that embedded into a meaningful geoeconomic and geopolitical sense, which sees this country in this part of the world, where Australia, New Zealand, other, are big actors. This is a real search. Uh, for a new a new equilibrium, a new a new way, but uh, one of the messages that I'm bringing here, and I will discuss tomorrow with the with the Australian authorities, is that I would like we would like as Europeans to have Australia fully into this. Let's see how. We are doing already a lot of things through projects, uh, parallel thinking, etc. Let's see if uh, you know we can find a formula in which Australia can be more part of this as a partner of the European Union as the biggest part of all these islands, which are your neighborhood. You know. I think that this would be quite huge uh, to, to discuss. Then I spoke about uh, the setting, spoke about the communalities. Let's, after gender, let's, let's speak about another um, general issue. I said at the beginning, climate change agreement uh, in Paris uh, 21. I, I think uh, that I can say that climate change is probably one of the key areas in which we can. We are already working together, but we can work even more. Um, we are doing uh, and, and spending our money uh, in supporting uh, adaptation and mitigation uh, in, in, in the small islands. Uh, we are also working in order to set up capacities to be more resilient in respect of vulnerability which is structured. But I think that we have... Uh, to work even more together in order to uh, let's say to deal not only with the vulnerabilities but to turn this vulnerability into something which is, uh, is also a, let's say an opportunity you know uh, one challenge the opportunity is the governance of the ocean is the governance i mean is the governance of the, of the fishery activities is the governance of the deep sea mining all these are at the same time challenges and opportunities are challenges because no rules Big problem. Uh, wild exploitation, even bigger problem. But if we do it together, if we, if we set some rules, if we implement them, if we are able to reach out others which are working and living and doing economy in this part of the world, I think that we have an opportunity more uh, in order to deal with that. In any case, this is the commitment that uh, we took together in Paris. All these are translation in concrete terms of these commitments. You know. And uh, I mean, as Europeans, we have always worked with the small islands here in the Pacific. They have been always our allies in setting this scene. They are protagonists. They are not, they are not only victims, they are protagonists. I think that uh, we have to work uh, uh, together. Australia has pledged uh, several billion. Australian dollars in order to support these countries in climate change agenda and transformation you know we have mobilized also billions here and in other part of the world again let's try and see how we can do it together in partnership our approach is partnership as I said therefore you know this this is what uh, i keep uh, i keep uh, I keep promoting now uh, say it's the, the, these are at the same time you know the 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 framework in which we are working, these are some example, but structuring example of what we can do here and why. Uh, I simply like to end because, because I said, uh, let's, let's talk a bit together. For me, an extremely enriching way to listen and to listen in particular for those which have, uh, you know, the, the, the main task in being a researcher, student here to prepare the future of this country, of this part of the world and to contributing a bit for all what the, the, the Europeans are doing. Is, uh, is the way of sharing, sharing, uh, sh- sh- sharing values. I mean, sometimes there is sort of debates between values of interest, as if they were, they, they, they were contrasting. I think that uh, all the history of the European Union is to try to put together values and interest. Uh, what we are trying in the best moment of our history now we can discuss whether we are now passing uh, through one of our best it certainly is one one of our of the most bumpy but we are trying to say our values are also our interest the value of solidarity is uh, is also our interest we have been never ne- never been able to set up a meaningful single market uh, if uh, we had di- made the distinction between value and interest because values are freedom interest is to do business about freedom and therefore this if uh, we said, that, you know, we are we, we are we are building about peace and about recognition of differences. It's because we are trying. We are trying uh, to put together our values, which is respect of the other, respect of democracy, respect of difference, with our interest that can build a better society on this, societies which are more reliant on this. Therefore, this, uh, let's say, dichotomy, which too often is presented as make a choice. Do you want to follow your value, promote human rights, or you want to follow your interest, which is, for example, to have a government which is able to be assertive in respect of threats? Well, allow me to say that this government, which are also in the European Union in these days, uh, I mean, presenting some interest in building walls, are not... Are not, are not effective. And at the end of the day, as you have seen in the declaration which has been signed in Rome, they all recognised that either we do it all together based on the same value, you know, and then we can differentiate sometimes ourselves. But at the end, there is a community of value, which is the best way to, to promote also our interest. Therefore, yeah. I think that in our relationship with, with Australia, that, as I said at the beginning, is part of our world, our, our intention is, our proposal is to do even more together, to do it in a more strategically together, and then uh, to learn lessons to each other and to try to build uh, and to work for a more sustainable Pacific, uh, I mean, Pacific area, which is uh, a common good uh, for all mankind, you know, for his resources, for his diversity, for his, his future. And a big part of our future is depending on what we are doing in the Pacific. The reason why, I mean, uh, very happy uh, to be in Australia in these days, you know, and, uh, and uh, to share with you a bit what are the key visions of the the European Union about this cooperation that I hope to bring forward in the next day. And thank you very much for your attention.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Stefano. You covered uh, a very wide range of uh, critical issues for us, and I'm sure there will be a number of questions from the audience. So who would like to... Go first, please.
0: Could I say thank you very much for sharing with us your vision? And, and, uh, and you were very generous what you said about the uh, EU. But I, I, I have to say you expect here more than well-meaning generalities. Let me say two specific things. The first is to quote from Paul Collier... He was director of the development research group at the World Bank in 2003, from 1998 uh, to 2003. He wrote, The economic partnership agreements with Africa have in reality been neither partnerships nor agreements. The EU strategy for Africa rests on coercing developing nations into providing EU exporters with preferences, in exchange for granting preferential access to the European market. And he describes how, in the negotiations which he carefully described us, Europe was threatening to put up tariffs on African nations unless preferential access was granted to European countries. Now, the second thing I want to say is this approach to trade and development is utterly different from that in the Asia-Pacific region. And I hope as well as providing us with a sense of your vision, you will learn a little while you're here about this difference. I'm I'm giving a talk tomorrow uh, afternoon in which I will be comparing what is emerging from the regional economic cooperation process in Asia with the approach to development which the European Union has been practicing. And there are very great and very important differences and I think in this region, we would advocate that the Europeans learn a lot from the open regionalism, which, I, which has been practised with such success in Asia. And I hope you will take back some... I'm sorry you won't be able to keep, be here tomorrow, but I hope you will take back from those meet in government some sense of this difference, and some sense of how important this difference is in the post-Trump world of difficulty that we will face
1: ourselves in. Thank you. I should ask that <laughs> David Vines was uh, visiting us from Oxford. Thank you, David. Uh, do you
2: want to respond? No, maybe we can take two or three, and then a few more
1: <coughs> other questions. Yeah, on this side. Uh, just introduce yourself. Yeah. yeah uh, hi, I'm and I'm from the Corporate School, of Course in Policy and Governance. And thank you
0: for your talk on and uh, I had a question in terms of climate change and consumer behavior. Uh, what is the European policy to avoid this uh, planned obsolescence in terms of technology uh, and consumer behavior? Because you talked about one of the pieces productivity and another US people. So if you link these two, it's one of the, the severe problems that the most uh, countries are facing is planned obsolescence <coughs> and consumer behavior. So... There's even no what we're Thank you. Hi, my name is Steve. I'm joining um, with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, but I'll actually be meeting you, on, uh, you and your delegation tomorrow as well. But I had a question about um, what do you think the impact of Brexit will be on uh, the way that the European Commission you the EU engage in the city?
1: Maybe more broadly, I think we'd be interested in the (laughs) impact of Brexit. So why don't you take those three? Yeah, okay. That's
2: a lot to start with. We'll have another round. Yeah. Well, first, I think, uh, I mean, I know very well Paul Collier also personally, and we discussed several times. I appreciate his uh, way to have a snapshot which are catching the eye, but uh, a bit less when he doesn't say the truth, Uh, because uh, talking about threats, uh, is something which can catch the eye in some title in newspaper, but it's simply untrue. Uh, this, no, no, sorry, but may, may I may I finish? No, no, but there are many because I discussed also with Joseph Stiglitz about this and several others. You know, the, the basic point are let's set uh, uh, let's say the truth, and then we can assess it. You know, first, uh, you know, uh, the countries have uh, these countries have uh, uh, quota free and, and and duty free access to the European market. Okay. Therefore, there is no threat, they are already there. The threat is coming from other, was coming from other countries which feel discriminated according to the WTO rules. This is the reality. This is the starting point. But uh, the interim IPA that we agreed, including uh, those in the region with Fiji and PNG, are uh, uh, allowing to keep the same duty-free and quota-free access to the European market without having a symmetric opening of their market to our, to our goods. This is the uh, goods and services. This is the reality. Then you can, uh, you can put that uh, into a context in which is this contributing to regional integration or not? Well, it depends. Uh, you know, in, in, in Western Africa, for example, it was it was and is still built on their own custom union. And by the way... Those which are now arguing very much uh, in order to conclude the regional IPA are those countries which are precisely affected by others which are not uh, concluding, in particular Nigeria, uh, because they fear that uh, they are threatened in their regional uh, superpower, let's say, in order to impose a bit standards. Therefore, you know, um, all the interim EPA which have been concluded, um, you know, have... Showing that uh, the immediate effect is to keep duty free and quota free access to our market to have a push to some standard setting at regional level and according to regional rules, and they have boosted uh, regional, inter- internal regional trade. Example is the Eastern African community where, in the moment which Tanzania has decided not to conclude, has creating a lot of fears, where? In Kenya, in Uganda, and others, because they see their internal market under threat. Then, we can discuss whether this is a true development, if this has a real you know, all the benefits that we say, this is a fair, it's a fair discussion eh? but simply let's have this fair discussion on the basis first on facts and then we can see whether it is the best things uh, to do. I noticed that here in the Pacific now recently in addition to PNG and Fiji, also, also Solomon Islands, uh, have requested uh, to conclude an interim IPA in order to have access to, 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 the same, uh, to the same treatment. Now, I repeat, I mean I don't want to say now it was the best things to do uh, and I, I admit that we made a lot of mistakes because, by the way, we also also presented, hence the threats language, which is unfair, uh, what is the rule of the WTO as if we had a specific agenda on this. Repeat, the WTO rules foresee that unless you are an LDC unless you are benefiting from the everything but arms in the European scheme, you are subject to a form of regularization which should be a free trade agreement. We suggest a free trade agreement which is asymmetric. I repeat, we can discuss whether it is the right things to do in terms of development, in terms of, let's say, fostering regional integration, but let's do that on the basis of facts and not on the basis of Votel. Now, uh, more than ready on the contrary, I'm here a bit also to say this, what could be the Pacific wave? Uh, uh, and this is one of of the issues that I would like to discuss because this has an impact on what I describe to be the post-cotonou, what is the regional setting in the Pacific in order to do it, and the the, the Pacific and the the, the regional setting is also uh, to be seen in economic terms, you know, but economic terms which are allowing everybody to do better, not uh, to do less, and and to do better, not just uh, in an inward looking, we are living in in a global market, therefore whatever things is to help in creating added value chain, which at the end are allowing whatever economic activity to be more competitive in a global market. Therefore, you know, let, let's, let's see. We are all obviously more than ready to participate to any kind of discussion at WTO level if there are improvements in the international legislation. By the way, you know, in this post-Trump I mean, precisely here, uh, I think also we have to to see whether we have an interest in defending WTO or simply, you know, to consider that it's better to have no rules. I still believe that it's better to have some, maybe maybe reform in them, rather than to go to a wild, uh, a wild uh, market, which, by the way, is not benefiting anybody. Now, on uh, uh, climate uh, um, and uh, and consumption, you know, uh, here uh, we are what, what we are trying doing at the European Union level well, because I mean, whatever we do, first we think about is our experience, and then we share it then we don 't export, we share it I mean first is the issue of recycling, second is the issue of not wasting, third is the issue of uh, thinking in terms of added value chain. You know, is a different way of consuming because instead of reproducing a sort of model which is based on a sort of infinite relation with, the, with our planet is a, is, a, is a way to indicate the way to do with the local economies, with the recycling, with the, uh, not wasting water and all, all natural resources. So therefore, the different here in the Pacific, you know, n- no, no lesson to give to anybody, no more than to export. But but I think that when we talk about climate change agenda, we talk about uh, governance of the ocean, illegal fishery, conservation of the natural resources, you know, exploitation in a sustainable way. For example, timber, for example, mining, for example, all natural resources which are here around. If you feel that, you know, um, if, if our models, our societies are feeling that you can consume in the sense, extract from the water, extract from the sea, extract from our forestry, whatever is possible, in order to go ahead without any kind of limit of governance, then you don't find the right balance between a climate change agenda, which is about sustainability, and and consumption. Then it starts big and, and arrives into our... Plates when we eat every day or when we, we, when we built our houses. Therefore, this is the way. I mean, take energy. Energy is a typical thing in which you can have at the same time, the, the, I mean, you have the climate change and the consumption. I mean, energy, if we keep believing that it is based on the wild consumption of fossil-based uh, I mean, energy, you simply are cheating people because what we have to do is to accompany our transformation. It's not easy, but... Uh, this is why we are in a sort of new new revolution, new, called digital I mean, revolution, I mean whatever. But simply, we are shifting here. Not easy, uh, not immediate, not automatic. But this is what I meant when I say changing the way of consuming from energy to food from, and, to, and to resources. Brexit, well, I mean, Brexit could be, it could be very long or very short. I mean, uh, very short in the sense that we'll see tomorrow, because apparently uh, the United Kingdom will trigger tomorrow and present this famous Article 50 um, in order to uh, then allow the, the European Union to set up its negotiating mandate. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you know, the, the mechanic institution is this. Tomorrow, as announced, there will be the notification. From tomorrow, on the basis of this, there will be a work in order to set up a negotiating mandate for the Commission on behalf of the Union to negotiate what? what you know, the treaty, to allow a sort of order way out of the United Kingdom and then to organize a new relationship with the United Kingdom in that order because this is the treaty. Mm -hmm. Second thing, uh, uh, is that uh, something which, uh, how how we can appreciate this? Well, I I say, uh, I mean, we, we appreciate this in objective terms. It is a possibility. Therefore, a member state has triggered that. Let's do it. Let's do it in the mutual interest of both. It's not a declaration of war. eh? It's simply uh, a declaration of of divorce in the sense that the United Kingdom decides to go into another direction. So, therefore, we have to do it without a sort of form of passion, the one against the other. We have to do it in a civilized way because, in spite of Brexit, the United Kingdom will firmly remain in Europe and and, and Europe will still have the United Kingdom as one of the closest partners. Therefore, this is the way in which... It will not be easy, not be easy because it's unprecedented, because uh, this means, uh, I mean, things which are hard to believe in terms of... uh, Rules, single markets, you know, movement of people, of companies, of services, of money, I mean, all what you want. Therefore, it's something which must be done carefully. And then we'll see how to rebuild another, uh, another relation which is also unprecedented, because because so far, you know, there were many ideas, you know, could be the, the Norwegian model, the economic, European economic area, we can have a sort of a new association, a free trade, etc. Free trade, by the way, based on WTO rules, because this is what exists. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It will depend. Uh, you know, personally, as the vast majority of people have shared, uh, you know, I mean, Europe uh, is it's, it's not a moment of joy, but I mean, let's let's manage for the better. What I have to say is that uh, um, what is the I mean in development and then in 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 the Pacific. I mean uh, in development policy, um, I think that. In, is an area in which, in due time, in following the negotiation, the procedure, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we will probably find a lot of, or keep a lot of communalities because we are doing a lot of things together, because, uh, because our policy in the one of the United Kingdom has been uh, in line uh, since decades, because the United Kingdom is a big partner of ours, because, uh, you know, simply to say, you know, I have in my DG a high number of... Uh, uh, not only a British officials, of course, but also a high number of uh, people which are seconded by the United Kingdom to my administration because they are genuinely interested in doing that at the European level. Therefore, you know, I mean, this is an area in which we have to see how, how this works. In the Pacific, you know, in the Pacific, I have to say, there is, as everywhere, possibly, at a certain moment, perhaps a financial impact because it means that we are mobilizing in the Pacific are out of the European Development Fund, to which the United Kingdom is participating a lot. And therefore, you know, if uh, this participation will therefore uh, uh, stop, clearly that we have less mean. But it is also, also possible that all the other member states will increase their the participation. So first thing is, uh, is theoretically a decrease of financial, uh, 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 of, financial, of financial instrument. I say that worldwide, I'm not saying that in the Pacific. Then, here in the Pacific, well, I don't know. We will uh, not have Pitcairn associated anymore. It's a pity. Um, uh, We will uh, have, uh, uh, you know, maybe less communalities, but, you know, I I simply noticed that uh, in the South Pacific, at least, uh, we have uh, five European Union delegations and embassies, which I think are more than the United Kingdom. Uh, So, I would say I would not take any kind of automatic consequence from from Brexit to our action here in the Pacific. I said since the outset that the European Union as such has a strong relation with the Pacific and is willing to keep this strong relation with the Pacific. Let's see if uh, uh, we will have another relation with the United Kingdom, I'm sure that this will be an area in which we can do equally uh, a lot of things together. But all this is now is speculation because, because we have to see how this will be done uh, in legal terms. It's a huge legal operation right? because to, to organize a separation from thousands of rules or habits or freedoms which have been built in, uh, together since '75 is not that easy. Therefore, let, let's do it calmly, let's do it in partnership, because you can organize also divorce in partnership. Eh? Uh, and and uh, let's think uh, about a uh, common future. I repeat, uh, you know, I, I would like uh, sometimes, you know, this is takes a bit of a harsh passion. Let's take, you know, um, we remain all Europeans. Let's see how this can be organized uh, for the better in the mutual interest of the United Kingdom and of the European Union at 27. I mean, at least on our side, we are committed to do that in, in, in that way.
1: Okay. Well, actually, uh, we are out of time now. So, uh, sorry if you didn't get to ask a question. But I think uh, that was a really good round covering uh, trade, climate, Brexit. Uh, and there are refreshments outside, so I don't know if you can stay. But perhaps you get a chance to ask a question outside. But for now, uh, we are out of time, I'm afraid. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you, listening to a podcast from the development policy center for more information on our work visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au to join the conversation on australian aid papua new guinea and the pacific and global development policy visit our blog at devpolicy.org at the blog you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media thanks for listening